Okay, go on then. Now, uh, talking about sex can make some of us uncomfortable. I just want to put that on the table right away because after last week's message, uh, I checked in with some of you and said, yeah, I just, um, uh, and that's okay. That's okay. I get that. Uh, I do. Uh, we're all at different places, but why is this? Most Americans I have found have lots of shame when it comes to our bodies and our sexuality. And because of that, then talking openly about sex and sexuality can make some feel really awkward. And you know what? That is okay. That is okay. So what we've done is we come up with all kinds of euphemisms when it comes to the act of sex. You think about those for a moment, sleeping together, making love, getting lucky, hooking up, getting busy, rolling in the hay, intimate relations, scoring, and a whole bunch of others that are not appropriate for this context, right? So what we do is we talk around it rather than addressing it. And so that's the purpose of these... uh, weeks that we're going to spend looking at this from the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I wonder why sexuality is making so many people uncomfortable. I had the opportunity to live in France, and in France uh, there's posters everywhere of bare-breasted women. simply because that's a part of their culture and that makes you know it's just like okay what's the big deal about this right here in america that thing is sensualized and and exploited and so uh this whole thing kind of gets out of whack and so as we think then about sexuality and and where we are we see that I look at this contrast. Why are we kind of reluctant to talk about it when it's slammed in our face every time we turn around? These things just don't add up to me. Now, who hasn't seen the billboards when you drive in or out of Sheboygan, right? Of course, you've got Dave Gruber, one call. That's all, right? And then you've got Culver's, which are everywhere, and billboards are everywhere. And then you've got private pleasures, right? They're, they're kind of always in sequence. And so we have normalized this kind of situation, and yet it makes us so uncomfortable uh, to talk about. And, and that's why we're doing this, right? And today we've added yet another layer of confusion and controversy with the whole idea of gender identity and how that works and sexual orientation and how that works and everything kind of gets muddled and people are screaming about it, others are not talking about it. Uh, The church has often been curiously silent on the subject of sex. The Bible, however, is not silent about the subject of sex, not in any way, shape, or form. We began looking at that last week. Our sexuality was not a bad joke from God. It was not an afterthought. It was not an accident. Sex was God's idea, is God's idea, right from the beginning. He created it. He put within every individual appetites. One of those appetites is a sexual appetite that comes from God himself. He didn't do it to torture us, but rather to bring joy and fulfillment when expressed in the right context, when we play by his rules. 
So I want to give you some highlights from last week. We kind of set the stage for our passage in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 by looking at sexuality in Scripture. So if you didn't have a chance to listen to that and you'd like to, uh, that is available online for you. Just go to our website. That message is there. But in an overview faction, we talked about sex is a gift given to us by God before sin entered the world. I think that's important. Sex was around before sin entered the world. The man and woman were naked and were not ashamed. And so we looked at that whole thing, kind of unpackaged that. Scripture verses are there for you. Secondly, sex is reserved for marriage. It is reserved for marriage. We're going to talk more about that next week than this week. But sex is reserved for marriage. That's God's way of doing it. Uh, Obviously, it's not the way it always goes down. And I mentioned to you last week, very, very seldom over these last, oh, I'm going on 40 years in ministry, particularly in the last decade or two, very seldom, very seldom do I do premarital for a Christian couple who is not already sexually active. Very seldom. So that's just the state of, of where we are. And so as we begin thinking about that, God has designed this thing. Sex is reserved for marriage. We looked at passages on that. Thirdly, sex can have some really serious consequences when it's not done God's way. Uh, He designed it to function a certain way. And when we violate that, man, we can get off kilter in all kinds of different ways that aren't so good, right? So fourthly, sex is a celebration when when it is done God's way. When we do it and follow his plan, we looked at those passages from the Song of Solomon. Those are steamy. Those are hot. Those are smoking. That's really happening, right? Right? And so uh, that, that reminds us then that sex is a celebration when, it, when it's done God's way. Now, last week's deep dive into the sex and scripture sets us up for some stunning words from Jesus that we're going to package in the next two days. So all that was background uh, to these Words from the Master, from the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. Okay, let me read it for you. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. His words are not mine. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So how, how are we supposed to pull this off in a sex-saturated society? How can any of us not lust and commit adultery in our heart when sex is such a part of our culture and our society. How are we supposed to do this? And so we're going to take a look at this. Now, while an issue for both men and women, as we'll see shortly, married and singles, regardless of age or culture, these sexual issues affect all of us. But let me speak about the guys just for a moment, okay? Sex is all guys think about, right? Is that all you think about? Sex is all you think about. You probably heard it said that men think about sex every seven seconds. 
That was a stat that was thrown out for a long, long time. If you break that down, that's more than 500 times an hour, more than 8,000 times during the approximately 16 hours a man is awake. That's a lot. That's a lot, 8,000 times. Uh, many attribute this myth, this myth to the Kinsey Institute. I'm a fan of the Kinsey Institute. It did not come from there. Uh, actual research shows that while men think about sex a lot every seven seconds, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Right? Some of you are smirking. Now, maybe that's not true. I don't know. Maybe you do. But uh, that's a lot, right? Every seven seconds, that's like, whoa. Okay. But since there's no good way to look at someone's brain for months at a time to determine exactly what they're thinking, but Jesus knows our thoughts, the scriptures say, the Ohio State University recently approached the question in a little bit different way. They furnished folk with handheld tally counters and told them to track your thoughts about sex, food, and sleep. Okay? So you got a counter, and every time you think about sex, food, or sleep, you got a counter, and you just click it, right? So they did this over a period of months, both men and women. And here's what they found. <laughs> the average guy tallied 19 sex thoughts per day. Okay? That comes out to once every 1.26 hours. About every hour and a half a guy thinks about sex. Okay? To compare that with other thoughts, in the average male mind, and her eyes guys are not average, let me tell you that, uh, men counted thinking about food 18 times and sleeping 11 times per day. Okay? Guys, you think that's close? <laughs> yeah, nobody's going to admit it. Somebody's pleading the fifth already up here, so, all right, okay. Now, let's shift to women. For women, food was number one. Food was number one, coming in at 15 times per day, followed by sex about 10 times a day, which kind of surprised me, and sleep about eight and a half times a day. Okay, so how long have you been awake so far? Uh, 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 uh. Okay, this is fun. So if we take a step back, and I want to talk to, to the guys again. If I take a step back and think about this, if these stats are true, what are Arise guys thinking about right now? I'm guessing a good romp in the sack followed by a snack and then a nap, right? <laughs> Men are pretty simple creatures, right? Pretty simple creatures. Those are the appetites that God has given us, right? This is not complicated. It is not that complicated. Hmm. What about frequency? Oh, boy, I'm going to rattle some cages now. This will be good. Uh, people under 30 have sex, on average, 112 times a year. That's a little over twice a week. But that frequency declines to 86 times a year, 30 to 39-year-olds, 69 times annually for those aged 40 to 49, and roughly once a week or 52 times yearly for folk in their 50s and beyond, according to the Kinsey Institute of Research out of Indiana. And uh, I think their stats are interesting. Now, understand this. You can't standardize or normalize this stuff, right? Every couple's different. Every couple is different. But 
I just wanted to throw out an average so that, you know, if you're wondering about this kind of stuff, these are averages. It has nothing to do with anything. I want you to know that. These are useless stats because every couple is different. And the way you handle your relationship will be different. And there are seasons, aren't there, in life for those of us that are a bit older in which we see ups and downs. And yes, so I don't want any guilt or shame over any of this stuff. It's not at all what we're about here at Arise. We're about freedom. And we're about what's right before God and with my spouse. That's when it becomes healthy, right? And we've got to talk about these things. Got to talk about these things, right? Uh, but bottom line is, who's counting anyway? I don't really give a rip what those stats say. What my concern is, what do the scriptures say? What do the scriptures say? Uh, so let's get going, shall we? Now, Paul wrote in First Thess 4, God's will is for you to be holy. What does the word holy mean, by the way? Set apart. That's right, separate or, or set apart. In its essence, that's what the word holy means. So he wants us to be set apart. So, and how do we do that? Paul writes, so stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife, for the Lord avenges all such sins. Ooh as we have solemnly warned you before. And Paul was writing into some real sexual perversion, both in Thessalonica and in Corinth and in the other churches that he had planted. So he understood this. Now, we read Proverbs 5. Here's some from the wisdom literature. Drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving, dear, graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. Now, if we were to translate this directly from Hebrew, what he's basically saying is have great sex with your wife. That's what he's talking about in this piece of wisdom literature. Now, in desert lands... Uh, a well was the most important family possession. And if you've ever traveled and been in a desert area, the well is the center of life. Without it, you die. So well is extremely, extremely important. It was a crime to steal water from someone else's well. In the same way, it's a crime to have sex with someone other than your spouse. In both cases, there's a whole lot at stake, more than just the two of you. The future generation, entire families, it can be devastating, but more about that later. I'm absolutely convinced the scriptures give us the answers to those things that are clearly spelled out in scripture. We call these directives. They are imperatives or commands. And Jesus just mentioned one, didn't he? What was it? You shall not commit adultery. That is a directive. That is a command. There's no negotiation. We either obey or we don't obey. We're given a choice to do that. But what about all the stuff, all of the stuff that kind of falls in the gray area? What do we do with that? Understand, I'm absolutely also convinced the Bible addresses through principles every sexual situation we will ever come up against. 
Every sexual issue is mentioned by principle in Scripture. There's a principle to cover that. And if you want a big one that covers everything, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So, if I break this down and I'm looking at stuff like oral sex, masturbation, virtual sex, fantasy, pornography, lingerie, exhibitionism, this whole idea of frequency, age, physical limitations, weariness, seasons, the loss of a spouse, singleness, gender identity. I don't care what issue you bring to me. There is a principle in Scripture which will cover that. There is nothing new under the sun. What we're experiencing as a culture, as a society, has been done before, probably far more extreme than we're experiencing now. I know, I rest assured, it's been done far more extreme than we're experiencing now. So this is nothing new. This is nothing new. Please understand that. Okay? But we have choices to make, each of us, every day, every hour. That's why we sing, Don, right? Lord, I need you. How often? Every hour. I need thee. That's right. That's right. Now, sometimes we get off on the wrong track and we wonder what it would be like to have a relationship with someone other than our spouse. I can assure you every married person in this room has had those thoughts. Maybe you're having them right now. Right? Every single person in this room has had those thoughts. What it would be like to have a relationship with someone other than our spouse. Our imagination fires up and then runs rampant. And what happens there in those situations is the father of lies fuels the fantasy and now we're off and running. And our brain is going a whole different direction than we intended. Now, we all know it, okay? It's happened to all of us, all of us. So we level the playing field and say, okay, what are we going to do about it then? What happens when that happens? What are we supposed to do? We'll get to that too. But I want to first mention some pathetic yet powerful lies that have come against both in my life and as I work with other people. Here's some lies, right? The answer is just say no. Just say no. It's easy, right? Just say no. Or just stop thinking about it. Just stop thinking about it. How does that work for you? Just stop thinking about it. It doesn't work. It's a lie. It won't change anything. I just need to try harder to be holy. I just need to try harder. I need to do more. Maybe I need to pray more, read the Bible more, whatever, right? So good things, uh, but not the answer exactly. It's up to God to get rid of these feelings and break my habits. God, it's all up to you. I can't do it, so you do it when you want to do it. Otherwise, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm just weak. God understands that. You see how that's truth-twisted? Are you weak? Yeah. Paul said that in Corinthians, didn't he? did he not? But my grace is sufficient for you, therefore I'll more gladly boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ might rest on me. Yes, we are weak, but that one's a lie and it's a twist, all right? I'm the only one with this problem. <laughs> no, you're not. No, you're not. Okay, I know when to stop. Or the flip side of that, I can stop anytime. Uh-huh. How's that working for you? Okay. God made me this way. Why fight it? I'm just going to go with it. 
must be his plan because he made me this way. <laughs> God will never forgive me anyway. Or the classic, the devil made me do it. Right? This is just lies. Lies that he's putting in the minds of believers. Right? Coming against us to say it's okay. You don't have to do it God's way. Don't worry about it. Everybody does it. Just let it go. Right? But we need to look at the truth. If we're coming up against lies continuing in our society and culture, we need to compare it to the truth. Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? And Jesus would say what the truth is in John 14, 6. Who can give me that verse? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is truth, right? He is truth. And Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from what? The lies, the deception, right? That's some really good news. He will set us free. He will set us free. Now, back to our passage found in Matthew 5. In the previous verses, Jesus had dealt with commandment number 6 in just a few verses ahead of that, in which he said, number 6 of the top 10 commandments, you shall not murder. But then he blew it up and he blew the people away with his startling teaching. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Ah, I've never murdered anybody. Oh, yes, you have. You ever been angry with someone? You've murdered them. He ups the game. Now he moves on to number seven. You shall not commit adultery. You can blow this one up too. You see, anger and lust are two of the most powerful and prominent influences in our lives. Anger and lust, they're often connected with each other. They both have consequences. So what we're going to do is we're going to look even closer by breaking this passage down into bite-sized pieces because this one's tough to swallow. Okay? So let's break it down. Jesus says, I say to you. I say to you. Now, in the original language, this is emphatic. In other words, he's saying, I, me, myself. The emphasis is on him. He say, I say to you. I say to you. I myself say to you. Why would he possibly say that? Why would he say that? Well, six times as we looked at in this passage of Scripture in these about 16 or 18 verses, he, he mentions the fact that you have heard that our ancestors were told, and he's referring to what was taught by the religious rabbis of the day. Then he counters it six times. You've heard it said, but I say. He's not negating Scripture in any way, shape, or form. What he's doing is negating what the religious leaders were teaching and how they were interpreting Scripture. You've heard it said to our ancestors, but I say to you. And so there's a dramatic shift that happens in this moment. And it's profound. Jesus is putting his teaching over and above the authority of the religious leaders of his day. Now that didn't make him any friends among the religious types and as he goes public with his ministry three, three and a half years later the same religious leaders would tack him to a cross because he said that. 
You've heard these guys say, but I say to you. And they said, you're not going to say that to us anymore. We're going to handle this problem. We're going to kill you. And from that moment, they attempted to find a way to do it. Because he put his authority over that of the religious teachers. This is a profound moment in this passage of Scripture. Didn't make him any friends, that's for sure. Except among sinners. Okay. So, let's break it down. Here we go. Let's see what Jesus says. I say to you... Next word I want to look at is looks. If anyone looks at a woman with lust in her, the word looks is a present participle. That's important because it emphasizes and points out the continuous action of looking. The continuous action of looking. This isn't accidental or involuntary. Oops, I just looked there, but it's intentional and it's repeated. Okay? It's not accidental. It's intentional. Okay, so let's demonstrate this, shall we? Uh, Dustin, why don't you stand? Greg, why don't you stand? Okay. Now, okay, so what we're saying is this is in the present tense. It's this continual looking, almost the gawking, right? So let's see, let's say a Dustin, right, sees pretty mama walking in front of him, right? Okay, that was a very good move, Dustin. That was smooth. You are smooth. I like that. All right, okay, let's say that pretty mama's walking in front of you this way, and what are you going to do with your eyes if you're obeying what Jesus says, right? Anyone who looks, this gawking, this stare. So if pretty mama's walking in front of you, where are you going to look? (laughs) <laughs> okay the answer is not at her <laughs> okay this was an easy one you can sit down all right, all right yeah okay now now we're gonna put no no greg 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 you're on the spot okay let's have you say pretty mama's walking in front of you and you're just checking her out let's give me the look give me the eye okay because <laughs> you're that guy <laughs> No, because he is every guy. And I don't care if you're looking, you're just kind of peeking, you're just kind of, oh, you're checking her out, right? He is every guy. Now, Greg, let's see the look that you give when you're checking her out. (laughs) Quit looking at me. Is that all you think about is sex? <laughs> okay, you can sit down before I get myself in big trouble here. Thanks, guys. Thanks. But there's a big difference between this look, not the little whoops, right? But this fixated. And we'll come back to that in, again in just a moment. Jesus is not talking about the unexpected and often inevitable exposure to sexual temptation. We live in a society where we will be exposed, we will be tempted. Temptation is unavoidable and it's universal. It's everywhere 
and in everything and comes to every one of us. So early on, one of the verses that I memorized to help me comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temp this is the New American Standard, no temptation has overtaken you but such as common to man. And God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the way of temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. No temptation is overtaking you, but such is as common to man. If you need more clarity, here it is from the NLT. But this has been helpful for me. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so you can endure. Now, if men are tempted by looking, is God doing that? What is God providing according to that passage of Scripture? The way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Now, this isn't one and done. He knows we're in this for the long haul, and whether it's sexual temptation or some other temptation in our lives. He knows, he knows that we're going to have to endure this thing because each of us has a weakness, and the enemy's going to put his finger right in there, and he's going to keep picking at that thing. He's going to keep gouging. He's going to come again and again and again right at that area because he knows that's how he's going to pull you down. Okay. Now, please understand this. The sin is not in the temptation. The sin is not in the temptation. Now, some of us as believers beat ourselves silly over being tempted. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It won't change anything. We will be tempted. Jesus said we would be tempted. We will be tempted. The sin is not in the temptation. So if you are beating yourself up just because you're tempted, get real. The enemy's got you right where he wants you. Filled with guilt and shame because you were tempted. Right? Not what the scripture is saying. Temptation is going to happen. Cain, one of the first bad boys of the Bible, right? Kills his brother. Lord spoke to him and said, if you refuse to obey, watch out. Sin is waiting to attack you, longing to destroy you, but you can conquer it. Or the NLT, if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. So it's the very first sin with Adam and Eve and their offspring. Sin has been crouching at your door, waiting for you to open the door. Then it's going to pounce on you, Right? That is the normal Christian life. The sin is not in the temptation. It's how we handle the temptation. And we're coming to that. Moved here from Bangkok, Thailand. One out of every seven Caucasians flying into Bangkok was on a sex tour. So this was from the Bangkok Post. I thought about when I was doing, making this message. Bangkok Post is the newspaper for Bangkok. Statistics show that out of all the Western couples coming to Thailand, only 30% of them remain together after two years of fighting the irresistible temptations on the streets of Bangkok. 30%, 70% of marriages fail within two years because of all the temptation on the streets of Bangkok. It's not just there, it's here, it's everywhere. Comes right piped into our home through music, through media, through whatever. It's there. It's there. The question is, what are we going to do? We got to fight. So here's where it gets interesting, right? 
He says, if you look at a woman with lust. Well, let me ask you this. Is lust bad? Is lust bad? Ah, you guys are getting too good. You know I'm setting you up. You're getting too smart. Ooh. Is lust bad? Now, our first thought would be, yes, lust is bad because of the connotation of the word in our culture. Lust would be bad. That is not true biblically. And here's why. Lust, the word epithumeo in Greek, means strong craving or desire. It simply means a strong craving or desire, generally affected by our emotion, epithumeo. Now, that word is used frequently throughout the New Testament. Let me give you another usage just to balance this thing out. Put it there in Philippians 1. For to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. I'm torn between these two lusts. Same word. These same desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me, but for your sakes it is better that I continue to live. Paul lusted, same word that Jesus used, after heaven. He had a strong emotional desire, a craving for heaven. He understood, wow, heaven's going to be absolutely incredible. And so when we use that particular word, be careful, because the important thing is what is the object of our lust? Jesus says, if you look at what? A woman, right, with lust in your heart, she becomes the object of our strong emotional desire. Paul says, I lust, same word, for heaven. Because then we'll be free, truly free, right? And so... The object of our craving is what's important. There is no sin if the temptation is resisted and the gaze is turned somewhere else. That's where the whole process begins, is in that one gaze. It's that lingering leer in order to satisfy the lustful desires that Jesus is condemning because it points to the condition of our heart. It is not set on things above. It's set on things here. And I am looking to fulfill my lustful desires this way, right? And that gaze will do that. If I look at a woman with lust in my heart, Jesus says, I've committed adultery with her. Hmm. Also, I want to remind us that women can be just as susceptible to lustful looking. Singles, married, I don't care who you are, what your age is, what your race is, doesn't make any difference. We're all the same when it comes to this issue of the heart. Origen was an early church father. He lived from 185 to 254 one of the more exceptional writers in the early church. He was so convicted by his own lust from these exact words that he had himself castrated. He said, I've got to handle the lustful condition of my heart. And you asked last week about, hey, why don't we go to a monastery or a convent? Would that make things better? Do you think Origen having himself castrated solved his problem with lust? Huh. We know it won't. 
And then you're going to get confused because you're going to say, why did Jesus say, gouge out your eye or cut off your arm? Was he looking to solve the problem that way? I don't think so. Because every guy in here has your right eye. Every single guy does. And every one of you, including me, has fallen to the wrong thought. So why do you still have your right eye? Because Jesus knows that doing anything with this is not going to affect this. Because the battle is right here. And that's where it begins. And that's what he's addressing. Right? Right? Okay? Everybody with me? Now, how are we going to do this? If, if the solution of lust and impurity cannot come externally by what we do with our bodies necessarily, it's a condition of the heart. How do we do this? Now, this afternoon, the Seattle Seahawks will take the field, Lambeau Field, and the semi-frozen tundra against our Packers. We can rest assured that both teams have watched endless hours of video of their opponent's games. Why does a sports team watch endless hours of their opponent? Why do they do that? So they can win, but what, what are they looking for? When, looking for their weaknesses and their strengths. Exactly. They want to exploit the weaknesses and stay away from the team's strengths, right? Same exact principle comes when it comes to living the Christian life. The Bible declares that Christians have an accomplished adversary who is relentless and ruthless, and he doesn't take vacations and he doesn't take breaks. So Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and <laughs> probably the epicenter of his day of sexual immorality, and that's where we get the passage, I wish that you were like me, that you would remain unmarried because of all the perversion. And he, remind, he reminded them to follow God closely so that Satan might not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. We have to know our opponent. Now, I've always been fascinated by the fact the same Greek word, pyrosmos, means temptation or trial. The same word means temptation or trial. Think about that with me just for a moment. The same word means temptation or trial. Huh. Why would that be? Why would that be? Hmm. What determines if that thing that comes into my life is a test or a trial? If the same word in Greek means test or temptation, what determines if this thing is a test or a trial? Your, your actions, your response to that thing. Things are going to happen. Things do happen. Things come into our lives. Now, whether that thing becomes a temptation or a trial is based on what we do with it at that moment. When things happen in our lives, I believe personally that everything that happens is for a reason. Do you believe that? Because I believe in a sovereign God who absolutely is in charge of all things and everything that happens in my life is for a reason. I am convinced of that. But God, in his incredible love, has given me a choice with what to do with that in that moment. 
right? Everything that happens will either strengthen us or destroy us. It will either build us up or it will drag us down. You see, what's really important is what happens in us, not what happens to us. And guys can complain, oh, I'm tempted, it's everywhere at work, it's everywhere, and okay, okay, okay. That's not what's important. It's going to happen to us, to all of us. The issue is what's happening inside of us when it happens to us. And so the same Greek word either means test or trial. This I can assure us, God wants us to walk in victory. He wants us to walk in victory. That is his plan for us. James 1 says, God tempts no one. He isn't a God who tempts, but it's the same Greek word, right? Rather, he wants that to be a test. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face tests, same Greek word, or for temptation of many kinds. Because the testing of your faith will lead to perseverance and perseverance to maturity. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to grow up. And testing is the only way that we can grow. But what happens? It will either pull us up or drag us down. A wrong response on our part can take God's testing, which he allowed to come into our lives. He wants us to grow. He allowed this to happen to us. It was meant for our good. It was meant for our growth. It's tough. It's hard. But he knows we can take it. He's not going to give us more than we could handle. He'll provide the way of escape also so that we may be able to endure it. And we make a wrong choice. And then it becomes temptation and sin and stumbling. And for some of us, it's cycled over and over and over again. Here it comes back again. Oh, my goodness, I know how this is going to play out. Because every time it does, here's what happens and here's where I end up. And it's not in a good place and I beat myself up and I'm filled with guilt and shame and I walk around as a powerless Christian. That is not God's plan. He wants us to walk in victory. He wants us to walk in victory. Now, when we hold on to God, or better yet, when we let go and let God hold us, we can be assured there is victory. There's nothing too hard for our God. Do you believe that? Yeah, there's nothing too hard. This is the growth cycle. On the other hand, we've all been tempted every day in every way. We've all been victorious over temptation, and we've all failed. We're all in this together, right? And so the Bible mentions numerous accounts of people just like us succeeding, handling temptation, right? When that thing happens with God's power... And the Bible also records with many folk who fail miserably because they try to handle it in their own strength. It reminds me of the two gardens, does it not? The Garden of Eden, where Adam tried to handle this in his own strength. What happened to him? And what happened to every person since then? And then I think of the Garden of Gethsemane, where this God-man Jesus knelt and he prayed. This is really tough, Father. May this cup pass from my hand. I can't do this. Nevertheless, your will be done. And he hung on, and he let go in that moment, and he let his father carry him across the finish line. One of the keys of handling temptation is knowing your opponent, you know him, He's out to destroy you. He's out to destroy your family. Perhaps he's ravaging your life right now. That is not God's plan. He wants us to walk in victory. It's time to fight. James said, resist the devil. He will flee from you. That is a promise. 
if we resist him, if we fight, not in our strength, but with weapons, not of this world, not carnal, but for the pulling down of strongholds, we will be victorious. So how do we do this? Surrender to God. Surrender to God. Comes back to this that I, I need thee, Lord, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. This passage from Romans 12, 1 and 2, I memorized it in a different translation, so I got to read this one. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because all of all he has done for you. Wow, thank you, Jesus, all you've done for me. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, my body, Lord, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. That is where the battle comes. We're going to pick this up right here next week in part three of this, and we're going to look at this. What did Jesus mean when he said, pluck out your eye and cut off your hand? Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. That's where I want to be. But that means each of us has a choice to make. So what's it going to be? What's it going to be? We have a choice as to what we're going to look at. We have a choice as to how we're going to handle it because temptation will come. The choice is ours. Just to make sure I've been clear this morning. Any questions about what we've talked about? Sam, why don't you come on up? Any questions about what we've talked about? Uh, Wayne is not going to the altar in repentance, by the way. (laughs) We're getting a mic that works for, for Sam. Good. Any questions about what we've talked about? Is it clear? Okay. A little harder to do, isn't it? But understand we're in this together. And if we're going to make an impact on our community, we've got to be people that are set apart. Not perfect. Nope. Because we're all going to stumble. We're going to look at that, what that word stumble means <laughs> from this passage of Scripture next week. But walking in victory. I'm excited about where we're going. I'm excited about the people that God will bring us. Now, 